Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the United States Study Centre online this morning. My name is Ashley Townsend, and I'm joining you here from Sydney. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence um, at the United States Study Centre. And it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome this morning uh, two very um, uh, good friends of the US Study Center for this morning's webinar on China's Belt and Road Initiative. Now, before I um, uh, introduce my guests, uh, let's just begin um, by uh, acknowledging the traditional owners of Australia, the University of Sydney, which is where we uh, uh, broadcast from today, stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are joining us from today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Now the topic of uh, Chinese economic statecraft and the United States um, and to a certain extent allied responses to it has dominated the headlines for at least the past five years throughout the Trump administration. And in many ways, this discussion, uh, as it's played out in the pages of opinion posts and as it's played out in the pages of government policy documents over the last few years, has really oriented around uh, the so-called Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which is a promise to spend over a trillion dollars in the coming years on regional ports, railways, fiber optic cables, power plants, and other forms of connectivity across the region. And on the other side of the proposition, what the United States can do about this by way of offering an alternative, should it offer an alternative, in which domains should Australia, the United States, Japan, India, and other countries focus to provide different options for regional countries in terms of their emerging connectivity. This morning, we're joined with one of the world's leading experts uh, in terms of people tracking Chinese economic statecraft and tracking China's Belt and Road Initiative, Jonathan Hillman. Jonathan Hillman is a senior fellow um, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a Washington DC think tank, where he's in the economics program. And he's also, and importantly for this morning's conversation, uh, the director of CSIS's Reconnecting Asia project, which is arguably the most extensive open source database that tracks China's Belt and Road Initiative um, globally. Now, Hillman has testified before Congress, briefed numerous government officials and senior executives across the United States and in the region, and written widely on economics, national security, and the nexus with foreign policy issues in our region. Um, to discuss his new book, uh, the aptly titled The Emperor's New Roads, China and the Project of the Century, uh, we're joined by longstanding United States Study Center friend and colleague Lisa Murray. Uh, Lisa Murray is currently the editor um, at the Australian Financial Review for perspective and review sections of the newspaper, but was also the correspondent for China based in Shanghai at the AFR for six years before her current position. In fact, Lisa and I used to get together over bowls of Shanghai noodles to discuss some of the issues that we're going to talk about uh, this morning. And so I'm really looking forward um, to her moderation of this discussion about John's new book in the context of this weekend's developments and the final formalization of the RCEP initiative, I think this is the right time to have this conversation. And I'm really pleased that the US Study Center can host. Uh, so without further ado, Lisa, let me turn proceedings uh, over to you to get this morning's uh, discussion underway.
Let's start with Jonathan. He might give us an introduction about his book and some overviews of his opinions on the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a huge topic in Australia at the moment. So Jonathan, I'll let you do that and then I might jump in and ask you some questions. Great, thank you. Um, thank you, Ashley, and thank you, Lisa, for doing this. And thank you to the US, for, to the United States Studies Center um, for, for hosting this. Um, so just, you know, just briefly, let me say a little bit about the book, how it came to be, and some of um, the arguments in there. Um, you know, there's too much, honestly, there's too much to cover um, in just a, a few minutes, and I do hope people pick it up and read it for themselves. It's the product, um, you know, of four years of, of research um, and, you know, collecting data on Chinese projects and going to visit Chinese projects. Um, I traveled to about 16 countries while, while writing um, this book. Um, and the, the, the real, the core of what I was trying to do in this book and in my work at CSIS is trying to provide a ground reality um, of what China's Belt and Road is and what it isn't. Um, because I think the ground reality is sometimes different from what we hear um, from both Chinese officials as well as critics of the Belt and Road. Um, and so just to, just to give you one example of that and sort of how the idea for this book was born, um, back in 2017, I had the opportunity to attend the first Belt and Road Forum um, in Beijing. And, you know, I was blown away by how well organized this was by... Um, how global it was in terms of the attendance, um, you know, over a hundred countries and international organizations participating in this, um, about two dozen world leaders uh, participating in this. It felt almost like um, a, mi a mini United Nations or something like that. Um, but also, you know, it struck me that the United States was there, but, but in a much more subtle, uh, much more and much smaller role than it typically is at um, you know, large international gatherings. And so it felt almost like there was this alternative, a preview of an alternative order emerging. Um, and you know, Xi Jinping spoke and Vladimir Putin spoke. Um, and it felt like this was, um, you know, the, you know, and they, they, they sort of hit some common themes um, and talked about providing you know, alternatives to um, you know, Western led uh, globalization. And so, they, and they had, you know, they had an audience. Um, uh, many countries were eager to attend and to court Chinese investment. Uh, and so I left that um, feeling like this was something that um, really was going to change the international order. Um, and it was really a preview of, of coming attractions. Um, you know, but what I've come to learn um, and what I learned while, while writing this book and, and again visiting about 16 countries is that the image of the Belt and Road that you get in grand halls is, is quite different from the reality on the ground. Um, and, you know, in, in fact, um, you know, I didn't even have to, I didn't even leave China before I started to kind of collide against the reality of what this thing actually is. I had scheduled some time to go visit projects in the region. And uh, my first stop was in Kyrgyzstan and uh, crossing the border from China to Kyrgyzstan. I had to go through about seven border checkpoints. Um, and you know, it's not very efficient to do this by car. I would definitely recommend flying if, if time is of the essence, but you learn a lot. You, know, you learn a lot by actually doing things on the ground. And you know, somewhere between um, you know, maybe checkpoint four or five, um, I got stuck 
because the border guards, the Chinese border guards went on lunch break. Um, and it wasn't a 30 minute lunch break. It was a three or four hour lunch break. And this is the type of thing that you don't hear about in the grand halls. And this is the type of thing that you don't see on the grand maps of China's Belt and Road with economic corridors stretching across the Eurasian supercontinent um, and, and around its maritime periphery. Um, th that, you know, that's the reality of friction at borders. Um, and so you know, I think we've, we've seen um, in grand halls the idea of the Silk Road returning um, this, you know, this, these images of car camel caravans and quotes of Marco Polo. Um, and there's something very appealing and imaginative about that. Um, I think we've seen, you know, these claims of, that China has, it, it's advancing a new model of development, um, claims that, you know, uh, or claims or, it, um, uh, you know, implied that this is a very hyper-centralized set of activities on the ground, what I think we see is that a lot of these economic corridors, at least on the maps that we've seen, are more imaginary or aspirational than real. Um, I think we see, rather than China uh, advancing a new, uh, you know, innovative model of development, we see it repeating the mistakes of many of its uh, great power predecessors um, as it goes into risky markets trying to deliver big projects. And rather than seeing this as being hyper-centralized, we see fragmentation. We see a competition among actors within China and outside of China to define the Belt and Road to suit their own interests. Uh, you know, in grand halls, we see, um, you know, we hear that this is going to be win-win. Um, we hear that this is going to be green and sustainable. Uh, we even hear that this is a sunshine initiative. Um, these are all, you know, words that Chinese officials will use to describe the Belt and Road. On the ground, I think we, you know, we, we certainly see, we see it in the data that I collected CSIS, that Chinese contractors dominate um, the, the projects that China is financing, that environmental standards are often lacking, uh, and we see a, a, you know, a, a real lack of transparency, um, which might allow projects to get started faster, but also makes them much more risky and prone to corruption. And so when you step back from all of this um, and when you go to see these projects um, and to talk to the people been, who are involved with them, you just, you realize how, how complex this is and how this set of activities is really a management nightmare. You know, the project of the century, uh, as it's sometimes referred to, uh, is an incredibly complex management challenge. And China has not helped itself. It hasn't offered a criteria for what qualifies as a Belt and Road project. Um, you know, infrastructure as a tool for influence um, can be useful in certain contexts, um, but typically large projects cost more than expected, take longer than expected, and deliver fewer benefits than expected, even in the best business environments. And China has gone deep into some very risky business environments. Um, in, in, the, you know, in, the, in the chaos here without criteria for what qualifies, um, you have rent-seeking thriving, um, you have corruption um, thriving, and, you know, I think we've seen um, as a lot of the Belt and Road activity has declined even before um, the pandemic began, you see uh, learning on both sides, right? This is not a static initiative, you know, the Belt and Road um, as it existed in 2013 is not the Belt and Road as it exists today. There are some projects that um, have, have been going on during that time 
Um, but we're looking at something where both the recipients and the officials, you know, the participants on the Chinese side have learned um, from, you know, a series of interactions. Um, and I think we also see uh, now looking at this, even despite the challenges that China um, has in some cases created for itself, I'm happy to talk more about that. Um, you see a, a resiliency in this set of activities, even despite the Belt and Road brand being somewhat toxic in some places. And that's because the need for infrastructure has not gone away. Um, and you know, in, in the pandemic environment that we're now living in, arguably needs will be even greater. Um, and leaders will campaign against the Belt and Road when they're seeking office, but once they get into office, uh, you know, they're very interested in uh, keeping their options open and trying to create competition among, among outside um, lenders. And this is also resilient because it's Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision. Um, it's enshrined in the Chinese Communist Party constitution. And so even despite uh, you know, a really uh, a, a rocky um, seven years here and a huge gap between what was promised and what's been delivered, I, I think this is something that will remain um, very important, important in understanding China's role in the world and how it's engaging beyond its borders. Um, and so just briefly to, to um, just briefly to conclude three things, three, you know, trends, I think we can, we should be watching going forward and happy to get, get into this a bit more um, in the discussion in the Q and A. Uh, the first is that I think we are going to see, we're already seeing a smaller uh, pipeline of projects. That's something that was happening even before the pandemic. And as that uh, level of project activity declines, I think there's an opportunity for Chinese um, uh, officials to increase their supervision of projects. And so we might be seeing um, a smaller and in some cases higher tech Belt and Road, you know, a Belt and Road 2.0 with, mm -hmm. with a greater emphasis on digital infrastructure. Um, another very important trend to watch going forward is what you might call the great renegotiation. And so this is as many countries, you know, over hundred countries going to the IMF now for debt relief. Um, China is for most of them, their largest bilateral official creditor. And uh, so I think Chinese officials are spending more time renegotiating deals than they are spending negotiating new deals today. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is being done behind closed doors without transparency. There's, you know, the risk of um, not, only, not only botching, you know, multilateral debt relief, but also a risk of political influence um, in these negotiations. And finally, the third, the third trend I think we, we need to watch uh, is really an opportunity. Um, you know, the, the new, the new um, administration in the United States, President-elect Biden, We'll have an opportunity to, um, you know, continue uh, parts of U.S. approach to global infrastructure um, that have been more promising to um, take a new direction in other areas, uh, and I think, it, particularly in that regard, an opportunity to cooperate more closely with partners and allies, and especially with Australia. So let me um, let me leave it there um, and turn it back to you, Lisa. Okay, that's great, Jonathan. And I'll just say quickly, if, if um, I just had a little thing pop up saying my internet connection is stay, uh, unstable, if that happens, just um, feel free to open up the Q&A and answer um, 
questions yourself. But look, I just want to jump in there. There's lots of um, interesting um, points that you've just made. But maybe we can just go back to the beginning. And I think, um, you know, since 2013, I think it's up to nearly half a trillion dollars worth of Belt and Road projects have been announced. And it's, it's across 140 countries. And these are big numbers. And as you mentioned, the Beijing Forum, I was there, you know, it was a big event. There were world leaders there. It was, it's very easy looking um, from the outside to see this as a big, ambitious and grand strategy. But the very important contribution your book makes, and I hope some, some um, reporting makes, is that on the ground, it's a different story. And in some cases, it's chaotic. Um, and certainly, there seems to be a lack of a, of a central strategy. So I thought it would be useful for you, just to the beginning, maybe to give us an example um, of a project that you see has been commercially successful and perhaps has achieved some of the aims that China set out to do, and maybe an example of a project that hasn't really got off the ground and is, a, is, is sort of emblematic of what you've just been talking about. Sure, yeah, and I think, you know, infrastructure is a four-syllable word and it can sometimes strike people as a little bit boring, but projects are really fascinating and projects, I think, large projects especially, are almost windows into, um, into you know, society and they're, they're, they're um, you know, often a high-stakes struggle among actors to, to shape them and define them. And so I do think that it is, it's important to focus on them. And, and, and so two, two examples that come to mind, you know, on the very successful side, I think perhaps the most uh, commercially successful project, uh, or certainly one of them uh, associated with the Belt and Road is Piraeus Port in Greece. Um, now this is a project that some of the activities around it predate the Belt and Road, uh, but that's also not uncommon. Um, you know, for, again, for no criteria having been put forward. Um, and so this is a, you know, two terminals um, run uh, by um, a Chinese state-owned enterprise, Costco shipping, um, and the throughput in these terminals has gone um, up very significantly. And so they've taken this port and made it into, you know, a regional leader. Um, and it's become a very effective showpiece for Chinese officials. They will, they will take uh, uh, sometimes officials from other foreign countries and bring them to the port of Piraeus and kind of get them to think about, you know, imagine what we could do if we work together. Um, it's also not just a port too. I think the, the really the interesting part uh, of, of ports when they, when they work well is they become commercial footholds and they open the door for doing other um, commercial activities. And so, for example, um, after the port was taken over, um, a, a tender was offered to redo the network infrastructure of the port. Um, and lo and behold, uh, Huawei won, won the tender. And so Huawei has, has overhauled the network infrastructure there. And I think if you go you know, on a cruise ship, uh, well, not these days, hopefully, but uh, someday again, um, if you were to go on a cruise ship to the Port of Piraeus, where there is a cruise ship terminal, um, and you're docked there, you can get free Wi-Fi uh, provided by Huawei. Um, and and there's, a, there's another set of commercial activities related to the port. Everything from, you know, I mentioned the cruise um, industry, there's a China, there are Chinese airline um, companies that now offer direct services to Greece. Um, there are um, other Chinese logistics companies 
There's Chinese banks that have opened up to provide financing related to the maritime shipping industry in Greece. Um, and all of that uh, fits in well with, with the, the, you know, the successful port. It's also though, it's, it's worth noting too, that the port, you know, as successful as it is, as a tool for influence, it still has limits. Um, and so if you go to a modern port, I'm always struck by the fact that there are very few people working at, you know, it's, it's sort of a mechanized symphony. Um, and so, you know, a very successful port does not require employing many people. Um, and that has not, you know, necessarily endeared um, Costco to the local population. Um, you know, some, there, there were some workers that were laid off. There's still a decent number employed. Um, but this wasn't done as a, you know, a, a social project or a project, you know, to really um, to create more jobs than were necessary to, to run the port. Um, so still some limits to the influence, even when projects succeed, uh, you know, on the side of projects that have um, not done so well, you know, I think um, those often get actually, you know, the, the, the most attention. Um, I think there's a series of, um, I've, I'm, I've become, you know, a little bit of a skeptic on the number of China to Europe rail services that have been announced. Um, and, you know, they, they make for really good headlines. Whenever it's announced, you get a story on the Chinese side when the train leaves China, you get a story on the European side when it arrives in whatever city it, it's arriving in. And it, it, again, gets this, the imagination going again about this uh, Silk Road revival. Um, and it, it gives the Belt and Road um, a set of activities that looks very peaceful. And so um, I think that's appealing as well. The routes though are highly subsidized by the Chinese government. And so at, at certain points, this relates to Lisa, your point about this being somewhat chaotic. At one point, um, you know, provinces were launching so many different routes that it was confusing to um, prospective customers as to where the routes were and who was gonna you know, be operating it. And so the government had to step in and standardize some of the naming of these services. Um, you know, but the, about half of the cost is subsidized by the government. Um, and, you know, still um, it, it really, you know, only for a subset of products, does it really make sense to, to, to ship by rail from China to Europe? So we're not going to see a massive, you know, inland shift of economic activity back to, you know, Marco Polo's world. Um, and so I think, you know, several of those services have been more political than commercial. Okay. And so if we look at how governments deals with the BRI, and obviously there's been a lot of heated debate in Australia at the moment, I'm sure you're aware that Victoria signed, it, signed its own memorandum of understanding with China over the BRI. And there's now um, the foreign relations bill is in the Senate now to try and uh, give the federal government um, uh, I guess, the ability to rip that agreement up if it wants to in terms of the federal government being in charge of foreign policy, not the states. So maybe you could talk to, and I noticed that a couple of the questions that have come in for you, uh, should Australia join the BRI, maybe you could talk to how governments should deal with this and in particular the Australian situation that we have now. So I think this is a, um, it's a challenge that other countries have struggled with as well. Um, and I, you know, let, it, let's maybe put this into context too and talk about what, just for a minute, what Belt and Road MOUs are and what they're not. Um, so there's also, there's, you know, some, some distinction, I guess, uh, maybe superficial between an MOU, which is often seen as the strongest level of cooperation or participation in the Belt and Road, 
and um, a cooperation agreement. Um, and I think to date, about 138 countries have signed either a Belt and Road MOU or a cooperation agreement. So that's most of the world, right? And so I think at this point, um, maybe, you know, maybe in the early days of Belt and Road, signing one of these was more politically salient. Um, but now you've got most of the world participating. So the holdouts are maybe more interesting than the participants at this point. There's also been a really a wide range of experiences among those who have signed these documents. And so, and, and really the documents are not, they're no guarantee of receiving any benefits, uh, nor are they a precondition for doing business with China. So the, you know, the example that I always um, come back to is, you know, there was a lot of um, concern when Italy um, signed a Belt and Road MOU. Um, you know, the United States released, you know, some pretty um, serious statements about Italy uh, signing an MOU. Um, Chinese officials went to Italy to do that and to, you know, to share the spotlight. Um, and then they continued on to France, where, you know, France did not sign an MOU. And France did 16 times more deals in terms of the financial mm -hmm. size of, uh, you know, the total of that activity than Italy did. Um, so, you know, I think these, the MOUs are not a precondition for doing um, business with China. And if someone's pushing them, I think we need to ask why, um, mm -hmm. you know, why is it, why is this a necessary thing? Um, you know, given how, given how vague the Belt and Road is, um, you know, isn't it more practical not to talk about participation in, in a very, you know, vague and ill-defined initiative, but rather on concrete um, activities? You know, so let's make it more specific and like and and not pay as much attention to the the, the broad banner. Um, you know, I, I do think that um, uh, these documents too, when you look at them, they're quite weak. Um, you know, so lots of them have not been made public. So um, it's you know you can't I can't say uh, definitively, um, but for the ones that we have seen, they're very aspirational. Um, uh, they're very general they're not, you know, it doesn't have the depth of a trade agreement, for example. Some of them literally say on the bottom, this is not a legally binding document. And so at the same time, I think it's important not to make too much of, of mm -hmm. these MOUs. Um, I think it's giving them more, more credit, more weight than they deserve. Um, but there's no question that this is an angle that the Chinese will continue to pursue, you know, subnational level engagement. Um, you know, there was a time when the governor of California was in China for meetings around climate um, issues and Chinese state media were then speculating, oh, is California going to join the Belt and Road? Um, you know, and so I think you'll still have this. Um, this, is a, this is also kind of a modern challenge too, where um, you have more actors in countries, especially in cities, you know, mayors being involved in foreign policy in a way that they might've not been when the world was less globalized. And so that's sort of a coordination challenge for governments to, to um, consider. Um, but, you know, I, I think it is worth just sort of stepping back from this and asking why, why is this MOU necessary um, mm -hmm. to do what we want to do? Um, and at the same time, let's not, let's not give this more weight than it deserves. Okay, I'll ask one more question and then I'll go to some of the, there's lots of questions coming up, but um, a double barrel one, I guess. So our China correspondent um, sort of noticed uh, in recent months that there's been less mention of the BRI in state media, you know, it's, um, 
it's been a regular feature of um, highlighting projects and, um, you know, the propaganda department's been working in overdrive to try and promote the BRI. It was mentioned as part of the um, five-year plan, but not in as big a way as has been in the past. So uh, I guess my question from the China side is, do you think there's some move because there have been some difficulties with projects to sort of step back a little bit from this priority? Or do you think it's still very much a big priority um, of the Chinese government? And I guess from your experience um, and looking at a new Biden administration coming in, how do you imagine um, uh, the new US government, the new US administration will deal with the BRI and China, I guess? Yeah, so th I think that your colleague's observation is right. Um, and I think that there are, you know, several factors um, for why, you know, the, the Belt and Road within China might not be receiving as much attention. I mean, you know, I, I think first of all, it does reflect the fact that there's been a decline, um, in, you know, in, in project activity that predates the pandemic. So, you know, the Belt and Road boom years were probably 2016, 2017 in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, those were, peak activity. Um, and, you know, and then you had a drop off in 2018, 2019, the pandemic really froze a lot of activity. Um, and, you know, I think if, if we imagine, um, you know, the, uh, you know, imagine some of the domestic, you know, political dynamics in China, um, you know, sort of during the aftermath of the pandemic, you know, it seems reasonable to me that the government would not be talking as much about a foreign infrastructure initiative, um, you know, at a time when, you know, growth is slowing and sort of, you know, people are more worried about, you know, domestic, um, domestic issues. Um, so I think that that's probably a, um, you know, a move that in some ways reflects, you know, domestic political priorities. Yeah, it, it's interesting though that there there has been other types of you know there have been other slogans that have been announced here um, during this this pandemic period. One of them, uh, not not new this year, but with new emphasis, is this idea of new infrastructure, um, and you know an investment in basically digital infrastructure. Um, a lot of that focus is domestic, but I think more of that could actually be funneled out through the Belt and Road, um, especially as Chinese tech companies face scrutiny in Western markets. So that's, you know, just another example of something that is, is you know, definitely a domestic uh, political priority um, that I think will find its way on the, along the Belt and Road into other markets. At the same time um, that there's a little bit less attention to the Belt and Road domestically within China, though, this is still something that remains on, um, you know, the international agenda for China. So when, when China goes and has meetings, Chinese officials have meetings with other countries, um, you know, the Belt and Road is, is frequently mentioned in readouts of those meetings. Um, so it's still very much an international priority. There's some, you know, some interesting variations in it. The Digital Silk Road is mentioned more often now. The Health Silk Road is mentioned now. You know, the Health Silk Road um, initially was about a paragraph in a 14 or 15 page Chinese policy document. It was not, you know, health was never uh, a major priority. Um, and, you know, that paragraph, which is, I think, published in 2015 or so, um, said that, you know, we're, gonna, we're going to cooperate and share information to prevent pandemics. And I think, you know, that clearly that wasn't uh, handled, um, you know, that, that, that was not achieved. Um, so it's interesting to have it rolled out now and, you know, having, having failed to, to, to sort of deliver the, the initial promise. 
Um, you know, in, in terms of opportunities for the for the incoming Biden administration, you know, I think that there are are several. Um, I, you know, I think there's going to be, uh, first of all, a, a you know concerted focus on um, you know restoring American competitiveness, beginning with domestic issues, you know, within the United States. And um, you know, my hope is that some of the anxiety about China can be channeled toward more productive ends, like doing an infrastructure package in the United States, for example. You know, I think it's it is a little bit embarrassing that you know over the last um, uh, you know four years, China has has been able to roll out a bigger infrastructure package in other countries than the United States has been able to roll out at home. And so I think you'll have you know a, an effort to um, you know help help the U.S strengthen those domestic foundations to compete more effectively. Um, cooperation with partners and allies is going to be um, a top priority. And I think that this is an issue actually where you know, the incoming administration um, will be more aligned with um, European allies and with Australia. Um, you know, one, one, of the, one of the promising efforts that um, is still relatively nascent is this blue dot network, which is um, you know, a cooperation among uh, the United States, Australia, and Japan, um, which has been, you know, at least in, in sort of uh, the early stages for about a year. And um, one of the challenges to attracting additional participants in that has been um, where the United States stands on environmental issues under mm -hmm. the current administration. Uh, and that's made it difficult for European partners to join this effort. I think that space, um, I think you'll see more convergence, you know, between, between the United States and its partners and allies on environmental issues that will make some of this cooperation easier. Um, and then I think you'll also see um, a change in some of the public diplomacy around competing with China. I think, mm -hmm. I think the current administration um, when it goes to other, when it goes to third countries, well, it talk, it often talks about China. Um, and I think sometimes foreign audiences are confused, you know, why U.S. officials aren't talking about the place where they are um, and about the needs of, you know, those um, localities that they're in. And so I think you, you'll probably see a, a difference in style here too, um, in an effort to speak more directly to um, you know, the needs of um, countries, some of whom still find, you know, the Belt and Road attractive despite its flaws, you know, because it speaks to their aspirations. Um, so I think that's another, another area for improvement. Okay. Now there's lots of questions coming in. So I'll ask a couple at a time. Um, Michael Wadley asks, um, what is your read on the legitimacy of the debt trap theory? A recent paper through Lowy Institute debunking the myth of China's debt tra trap diplomacy by Shaha Hamiri suggests this is overblown. And just to go with that, we had another question from Ariel Castro Martinez from the Young Australians in International Affairs. What could the US and Australia do to support the Pacific Island nations in making good choices with regards to the Belt and Road Initiative? So on the on the debt trap question, um, you know, it, it's it's almost impossible to talk about that question without talking about Sri Lanka because Sri Lanka has become, mm -hmm. you know, the the poster child for that narrative. I've got a chapter, uh, you know, on Sri Lanka in the book, um, and you know, my my reading of this is that so 
first of all, there's no question that China has been an irresponsible lender in, in some of these countries. Um, you know, in, in Sri Lanka, it was willing to uh, support projects, not just the port at Hamantota, but other projects um, that were really, um, you know, very clearly more for a um, short-term political purpose um, for the, you know, Sri Lankan leadership at that time, then really important development projects. So that's why you have, you know, not too far from the port in Hamatota, you also have an airport that's barely used and you have a cricket stadium that's barely used. Uh, and like the port, what all, you know, what those two things also have in common um, is that, you know, they're financed by China, built by China and named after um, you know, then head of Sri Lanka, Mahinda Rajapaksa. Um, and so it's, it's impossible, I think, what those examples also show is that it's impossible to talk about um, these debt dynamics without also factoring in domestic politics. And so I think that's one of the weaknesses of the debt trap narrative is it, it sort of, it, it turns recipient countries into these pawns, which they're not. Um, and in fact, I think many of the solutions um, for avoiding you know, the next Hambantotas involve, um, you know, work that needs to be done with recipient countries and not just scaring them about the dangers of Chinese lending, but helping them develop stronger institutions. Um, you know, it's a, it's, that's hard long-term work um, uh, and helping them, you know, be their own best advocates in some cases. Um, you know, I, there's also just, you know, on the, on the um, Hambantota port example, you know, I've gone so deep into this now that I actually got a copy of the original feasibility study for the port, which was um, paid for by the Canadian government, actually, in the early 2000s. And what's fascinating about it is it, it's this sort of missing, missing piece in the timeline uh, of this story that really, I think, um, helps shed some light on it. When the feasibility study was done, um, the, the government of Sri Lanka decided to pass on the project. Um, and so there was no domestic political patron to, to champion this. Um, there was a, a functioning port at Colombo already and plans to expand it. And that was, you know, that was the priority. There was also no international lender to take a risk on this project. You know, the feasibility study talks about um, you know, maybe, maybe Japan, maybe the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank, but no one was interested. And so really you needed those two factors in order for that project to happen, not just China willing to lend, but a domestic political patron. Um, and, and you got both of those things later on. Um, and so the last thing I'll say about the, about the um, debt trap narrative that I, I think is, you know, not as accurate um, as the reality on the ground. Um, you know, I think that it's in a way unintentionally generous to Chinese officials to suggest that something that was really an embar embarrassing management failure on their part, um, to suggest that it was a strategic masterstroke. Um, mm. So I, I see it more as a failing rather than a success of China's, um, you know, China's use of finance and influence along the Belt and Road. Um, no question that debt can be used for you know influential means. We, you know, we see it in developed countries like Hungary, right? And um, uh, the, the prospect of financing can be used to accomplish, uh, you know, uh, political ends. Um, 
but I, you know, I think that the idea that China is using debt to seize strategic assets, which is, you know, that's what the debt trap narrative is. Um, it's also just not, we, we're not seeing that, um, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the, the data that we have on this suggests that asset seizures are extremely rare. Um, it's something we should continue to watch as, you know, a lot of, as the great renegotiation uh, unfolds here and as many countries are, are looking for debt relief. And there's a lot that China needs to do to be a more responsible lender and to participate more fully in multilateral debt negotiations. Um, but again, the fragmentation of that, uh, of the Belt and Road makes that um, actually more difficult than it would be. Um, and I'm sorry, you were asking also about... Well, I, um, guess, I guess you've almost made the point there. I mean, in Australia, there's a lot of concern about um, the Pacific and China expanding its influence, potentially through debt trap diplomacy in the Pacific. Um, but I guess what you're saying is it's, it's not really um, a strategy as much, well, in Hambantota anyway, as much as a, a, a sort of mismanagement issue. Um, how do you think that plays out in the Pacific? And is that something that Australia should be concerned about? So I think, you know, I think um, when you're looking at the Pacific, you know, you're looking at um, countries that clearly have a need for, you know, for infrastructure. Um, you're looking at economies that for the most part are, you know, not incredibly large. And so doing a large project actually is more consequential for them in terms of the, you know, the debt load. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are, there's both the need and the demand um, and, and some risk there. And so I think it's definitely worth looking closely at these projects and making sure that they meet um, the right quality criteria. Um, the types of influence, I guess, that I, I think are more, um, uh, more likely through lending are things like supporting China's positions on diplomatic issues. Um, you know, in some cases, there are, you know, there are ports that could serve, you know, a non-commercial purpose. Um, you know, the nature of infrastructure is that much of it is dual use. Um, and so I think it's, you know, this again underscores the importance of transparency um, and, you know, asking, um, asking countries to really share the terms of these agreements, um, not just to sort of, um, not just to uh, convince, the, you know, the rest of the world that, um, you know, everything is fine, but really, you know, to, to make sure that these, these project risks, um, you know, are, are dealt with earlier rather than later. So, I, you know, I do think, I do think that there, that this remains an avenue for influence, but I, I think it's less about um, seizing assets um, and more about, um, you know, making friends in high places and, um, uh, you know, advancing a diplomatic agenda. Okay. Um, Glenda Corporal asks, um, is there an estimate on how much China and Chinese businesses are spending on the BRI? Um, could China lose billions of dollars? So the, the, best, the best data that I've seen um, suggests that there's been about $460 billion signed uh, in uh, construction contracts since 2013 among countries, you know, between China and countries uh, participating in the Belt and Road. You know, and again, these estimates are always really difficult because there's no criteria for what qualifies as a project. The list of participants has expanded. Um, and, you know, so we should always, whenever you see an estimate, 
I think you should ask what time period are we counting? What geographies are we counting? What functional areas are we counting? Is it just infrastructure? Is it other things? Uh, Chinese state media love to frame things like, um, you know, trade with Belt and Road countries went up by however, whatever percentage, um, which is not, I think, an indication that the Belt and Road is doing anything, but just that they're counting trade with, with lots of countries. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely worth being, um, being skeptical. And I think the, the, the other interesting thing about that question is that, um, yes, you know, the risk runs both ways here. I think we've been very, we've been very focused um, on looking at the risk for recipient countries. And I think that makes sense. Um, you know, they're usually the smaller party dealing with China and usually more, a bit more vulnerable. Um, but the risk does, you know, run both ways. And, um, you know, I think China um, will pay, you know, not only a financial cost, but also reputational cost um, as, as projects don't deliver on their promises. Um, you know, I don't think it's, it's going to be the type of thing that can, um, you know, sink the Chinese economy. Um, but historically, most infrastructure booms have gone bust. Um, I've got a chapter talking um, about, uh, you know, sort of deeper history examples of, of countries using infrastructure projects. You know, the United States economy tanked twice because of, you know, over-speculation in rail, railroad infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, this is not unprecedented. Um, so I, I do on balance think that the risks are greater for the recipient countries, but let's also keep in mind, um, you know, that, that China does stand to lose financially and reputationally. Um, so we have a question from Jake Hall, um, who's a year nine student, and he asks, are we restricting economic growth and jeopardizing our interests through opposition to the BRI? And um, he also uh, just put a question on the stream, and I think he said, um, uh, which I've lost, but it was, are we being biased against China through representation in the media and politics and in that way are we missing out on economic opportunities? So I'm a believer in evaluating projects, you know, on an objective criteria, um, actually, which is, you know, it's more than the Belt and Road has done so far, right? We still don't have criteria for what qualifies, but I think when we do, when we look at projects um, that China is involved in, I think we need to apply an objective criteria. And so, you know, there, there are now, um, some international best practices that are, that are, you know, widely acknowledged, um, you know, thing, things like, um, you know, having an open and competitive process, you know, to, to, to uh, award the work for a project, um, to have, you know, to having an environmental impact assessment done and to have it be public. Um, it, you know, there's just some basic things that multilateral development banks have been doing for years um, and it's not that they, um, you know, yes, some of this is slow and that's why China, this is sort of the advantage of the China model in some cases is it's faster because it doesn't do these things, but it's not like the world bank, um, woke up one day and decided I I'd like to do projects more slowly. Um, you know, the, the safeguards that exist at the world bank and other multilaterals are, are the consequence of having made lots of mistakes over the years. You could argue that they overlearned, and you know some of this has become too burdensome. But it's really there um, to protect 
you know, as, as the you know, banks are themselves to share reputational and financial risk. It's there to protect the countries participating in them. Um, and so I think we can, we, we can uh, use, you know, criteria to say, you know, this is what, this is the type of quality that, that we want um, to assess projects and to, to try to use that, whether they're Chinese projects or Japanese projects or Australian projects. Um, so I think, I think that's, um, you know, the, the, the sort of, we should use a common yardstick. Um, so there's three other issues I, I want you to touch on and I'm, we've got 10 minutes, so it's up to you how you allocate your time. Um, I, I, I was interested myself in how the pandemic has affected um, the BRI. Um, also, a lot of questions have come up um, which talk to um, the human rights issues in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. And I think it's a, an important question because obviously Xinjiang's a very important part of the Belt and Road, just being where it is geographically. Um, and the last point that we can't let you go without asking is about RCEP. Um, Andrew Song from Westpac says, with China's new RCEP deal, China will gain more economic power in the region. How will the US react to this and will the TPP be back? So um, if you can try and answer all three of those before you go, I think we'll give you a leave pass. And, and so could you just remind me the first one? Yes. Yeah, I, I, I was just interested, how's the pandemic affected yes. the Belton yeah. relationship? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, again, project activity was declining pre-pandemic, so I think that's important to keep in mind. But, you know, the pandemic really paralyzed a lot of projects. Um, in June, um, uh, China's foreign ministry gave a statement that indicated that about 20% of Belt and Road projects were seriously affected, in their words, by the pandemic. Um, and I think another 30 or 40% were quote unquote, somewhat affected. So, you know, those are, those are pretty large um, shares of, you know, projects. Uh, again, you know, it would be nice if they said which pro you know, what projects they're counting and all of that. Um, but just to have them say that upfront, I thought was interesting, you know, a little bit cynically, I think some of it, you might've also, they might've also been taking advantage of this opportunity uh, to suggest that, you know, anything that goes wrong from here is sort of was pandemic related. And, you know, the fact is that lots of projects were not doing well pre-pandemic. So there's, you know, maybe a little bit of an opportunity there. Um, one of the functional things I think we were seeing um, uh, that will be accelerated by the pandemic is this increased emphasis on digital infrastructure. You know, I think the, you know, the pandemic has really um, underscored the degree to which we're you know, reliant on digital infrastructure, countries that are well connected or have been able to, you know, we're able to have this conversation um, because you know, we live in places that are, that are well enough connected to facilitate it. Um, and so I think it's underscored the need uh, among those who don't have it. Um, and it's also, um, there's been an opportunity among, you know, I think some Chinese companies to package their technology as being part of the response to the pandemic. And so, you know, in that, in that case, you have examples like uh, Chinese manufacturers of surveillance cameras selling their equipment um, is helping to, you know, detect people with, um, with temperatures. And in some cases, actually wildly exaggerating the capabilities of their equipment. Um, but so this is now part of the, the, the um, Chinese pitch for safe cities or 
um, you know, they're the sort of equivalent of a smart city um, with an emphasis on security. And so I think the pandemic is accelerating um, that shift. It's also, um, it's really reducing the fiscal space that a lot of recipient countries have. And so, you know, from, from the perspective of a recipient country doing a large uh, transport or energy project, which is really what characterized the first phase of Belt and Road, becomes a little bit more difficult when you just don't have the ability to, to, to borrow. Um, and so again, uh, ICT infrastructure projects, they're not cheap, um, but they're often, they often cost less than doing a large transport or energy project. And so from the recipient side, that digital infrastructure also becomes a bit more attractive. Also, also you know, less disruptive to communities. You know, when you're laying a fiber optic cable, that's a lot less disruptive than uh, you know, building a, a railway um, requires fewer Chinese workers. So you know, all of those are advantages, I think, in the environment that we're in now after the pandemic. And so the second question was on Xinjiang and the human rights issues there, whether that's had any impact on the BRI or should have any impact or on how people approach the BRI. Yeah, I think it's a real, it's, you know, it's, you know, first of all, this is a, um, you know, one of the worst, um, you know, human rights um, violations in recent history. Um, and, uh, I think it's a real contradiction, uh, or it, it illuminates a real, uh, a real tension at the, the core of the Belt and Road. You know, if you think about the Belt and Road as really being about connectivity, you know, China connecting with the world in these different ways, whether it's through infrastructure or people-to-people -people ties or policy coordination, you know, China's approach, um, you know, in Western China, where, you know, the Belt is supposed to begin, um, is not friendly at all to connectivity. Um, you know, imagine trying to run a business, um, in, you know, in Western China when you're, you know, being told you have to, um, you know, do uh, mandatory anti-terrorism drills um, and, you know, you're, you're going through checkpoints all the time. You know, that's real, it's the antithesis of connectivity and it, you know, it reveals China's um, almost obsession with control. Um, and so, you know, the, the reality is that if you do want more connectivity, you have to be willing to give up a bit of control. Um, and, and I'm not sure that in some cases, China has been willing to do that. Um, you know, and, and I think it also, you know, if you, when I was able to go um, uh, to Western China and, um, you know, to do some border crossings, I was very struck by um, the, you know, first of all, the securitization of, you know, militarization of that area, the checkpoints and so on, but also the, the physical footprint of that security um, was quite striking. You know, the, the number of police stations and, um, you know, there's a, a real um, security uh, industrial complex there that I think has its own drivers. Um, and, you know, the, the sort of the playbook to build things, even when they don't serve a purpose, um, which China has done plenty of domestically, is even worse in that case. Because if you think about what those facilities are being used for, you know they're not just wasting the, um, you know the, the the physical capital that's being used to build them, but they're also harming human capital. Um, and so I, I think it's a real it's a real contradiction, um, you know, and, and something that. Uh, uh, stands out, you know, as, as we, again, compare the rhetoric about the Belt and Road to the reality on the ground. And just lastly, on RCEP, 
what's your view of the deal that's been done and how the US will react? So I think, it, you know, it's, it's a reminder that, you know, as the United States has um, taken a really different approach to um, trade and economic engagement globally over the past four years, that the, the rest of the world uh, has been uh, moving along, you know, and um, you know, this is an agreement that obviously contains uh, neither the United States nor India. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's, it, it's a, um, uh, a reminder that if we, if we think about the Indo-Pacific region, you know, we need to start thinking more about what is the U.S. Um, economic uh, pillar there. You know, we've, I think we've been doing a lot with the security pillar, uh, but we need to look at um, what the economic pillar is. You know, the agreement too, it's, you know, because of all of the countries involved and because of how long it took and so on, it, it's, it's not the most ambitious agreement. Um, you know, I think people will admit that, um, but I don't think we can dismiss it just because it's not CPTPP. Um, you know, this is, in some, in some cases, there will be improvements over existing bilateral agreements. In some cases, there won't. Um, but this is a reminder that multilateral approaches are still, there's still a desire for them. Um, and the U.S., you know, default over the past four years has been definitely to trend toward bilateralism and to do, you know, frankly, more renegotiating than negotiating of, of uh, new agreements. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it does underscore, um, you know, the need for a, a more serious U.S. economic uh, pillar in the region. Well, we've got two minutes, so just to lift the run rate of questions answered, Ted Bailey asks, which equivalent geostrategic precedent for the BRI warrants historic comparison, success or failure? Is there a quick answer? I, lo I love that question um, because it, you know, the, the, the spoiler for the book is that the answer is not the Marshall Plan. Um, you know, the, the Marshall Plan, at least the way that I think about it, was very concentrated geographically. It had a finite period of time, uh, a list of activities. Um, and most importantly, um, unlike the Belt and Road, it was focused on rebuilding economies that had already been developed, which um, as China is learning is much easier than developing economies that have not been developed before. Um, and so I think that there's um, you know, big differences between those two. The other, the other historical parallels that I, I use to contrast um, the, the Belt and Road with in the book um, are uh, Japan and Southeast Asia in the 1970s and 1980s. Lots of interesting, um, interesting parallels um, there. You know, there's even echoes, uh, you know, in some cases, China is pursuing projects in Pakistan that the United States passed on. Um, Gwadar Port um, was once offered to President Rich Richard Nixon, um, and uh, Pakistan even said, "We'll allow you to have, you know, naval access um, at at the port." Um, and so, you know, I I have a lot of these historical uh, comparisons in the book, and so it's hard for me to choose just one. Um, what I'm struck by, though, is that when you look at sort of the the powers that have come before China and have done these large projects. I think China is, is doing this in an environment that's even more difficult to deliver these projects successfully. Uh, and so I'm, I'm struck by, by that as being one of the biggest differences.
Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. I think it's very important to have contributions like yours, which include so much shoe leather and so much reporting from the ground. And I um, apologise to anyone whose questions I didn't get to um, ask. There were very good questions coming through. So um, thank you. And it was, it was terrific to talk with you.